an oracle, a prophecy concerning Egypt. Behold, the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt, and the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence, and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them, and I will stir up Egyptians against Egyptians, and they will fight each other against each other, each against his neighbour, city against city, kingdom against kingdom, and the spirit of the Egyptians within them will be emptied out, and I will confound their counsel, and they will inquire of the idols and the sorcerers and the mediums and the necromancers, and I will give over the Egyptians into the hand of a hard master, and a fierce king will rule over them, declares the Lord of hosts. This is the first part of this prophecy against Egypt. And what God is essentially saying through Isaiah in the bulk of chapter 19 is this. Do not run to the Egyptians for help when the Assyrians are on your doorstep. Don't go and put your hope in them. Don't go and put your trust in them. And God says he's going to judge Egypt in three particular ways that's coming in the future. And we just read of the first. The first is this. Do not put your faith and your hope and your trust in the gods of other nations. You see, the Egyptians, they have their idols They have their sorcerers, their spirit mediums, and their necromancers, but they will be of no use. Idols are of no use. Later on in his prophecy, Isaiah will get to a section on idols. He'll say they're just statues, they're just lumps of stone, they're just lumps of wood, they don't speak, they can't do anything. Don't put any uh, hope in them. Do not run away from the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, the Lord who comes on a swift cloud to these foreign gods, to these Egyptian gods. There's no salvation there. On the contrary, they will fail. They will lose. When the pressure is on and your enemy is bearing down on you, don't run to false gods. False gods don't know who you are. They're just a lump of stone. It's just a lump of wood. It's just matter. I was trying to think, well, what does that mean in our day and age? What is there that's similar to that? Because we don't tend to have these statues that we are tempted to give our devotion to. But there are other sort of more subtle things which are not dissimilar. Sometimes I hear about the universe I've been here, you know, does anyone else hear about the universe? This thing, this universe, as if, as if it's some conscious entity that knows something about you. I have news for you. The universe does not know who you are. <laughs> the universe has no clue who you are. The genius from the 17th century, Blaise Pascal, who I love to quote, wrote this. He wrote, through space, the universe grasps me and it swallows me up like a speck. But through thought, I grasp it. And that is very cool. That's a very cool observation and statement that he made. The universe is just space and time. It's matter. And it's massive. You know those things you see on the TV? It starts with where we are, and it zooms out, and you see Croydon, and then the UK, and then Europe, and then the world, and then you see the solar system, and then you see the Milky Way, and then you see just countless, we know, billions of galaxies out there, and you're meant to feel that the universe is very big. And if the universe is that big, then we are extremely small. And you sort of feel very insignificant because the universe is so massive. It's massive and it swallows you up like this speck, like an amoeba, this invisible thing which no one even knows is there. But in your skull are a few pounds of molecules which have this amazing capacity to look out on all of that and to comprehend it, to understand something about it. It doesn't understand you, but you can understand it. And I think that's cool. It's like putting your trust in science. Now, don't get me wrong, science is very useful. I spent eight years of my adult life studying science, learning in it, training in it, but it is limited. 
This is something we've become quite familiar with recently. In the pandemic, we were told we were constantly being led by the science. And as much as I value science as a tool, and I am triple vaccinated, and will be vaccinated according to whatever program they bring out, nevertheless, science actually cannot lead us anywhere because science is not that kind of thing. Science does not know us. It's just a tool. It cannot lead us anywhere. I was listening to the uh, academic cognitive scientist, the psychologist John Vivekis, with the University of Toronto, a very interesting person to listen to. And he made an observation that maybe one of the reasons for our current mental health crisis is because the scientism, which is one of the dominant philosophies of our world, which many of us even subconsciously imbibe, the scientism does not offer us a home to live in. It's just this cold, hard, unfeeling universe that swallows us up like a speck. The universe, science, they, they don't know who you are. They offer us no home. They offer us no peace. They offer us no place to abide in. And that is what is offered by a creator God who hasn't just made a cold, empty, unfeeling universe, but a wonderful creation in which we find our place in which we find our home. God knows who you are. He knows who we are. And he offers us this home to rest in. So do not run to false gods. Next verse, verse 5. We're going to verse 5 to 10. And the waters of the sea will be dried up, and the river will be dry and parched, and its canals will become foul. And the branches of Egypt's Nile will diminish and dry up. Reeds and rushes will rot away. There will be bare places by the Nile, on the brink of the Nile, and all that is sown by the Nile will be parched, will be driven away, and will be no more. The fishermen will mourn and lament, all who cast a hook in the Nile, and they will languish who spread nets on the water. The workers in combed flax will be in despair, and the weavers of white cotton. Those who are the pillars of the land will be crushed, and all who work for pay will be grieved. This is the second aspect of judgment which is coming upon the empire, the nation of Egypt. There is no salvation in natural resources. Egypt was a superpower because of its geography. It's there in North Africa where the River Nile, the mighty River Nile, flows into the Mediterranean. And that was the source of its wealth, but it will fade. The Nile becomes less important. It becomes less fertile, less of a game-changer. As the empires rise and empires fall, many nations in our world, including ours, have risen to prominence because either they have resources which they can exploit or they exploit the resources of others. Oil and gas, very pertinent at the moment. And many of us are feeling that. My gas and electricity bill has gone up by 100% in the last six months. That's something which we feel. But it's not just those things, it's also capital, it's creativity, it's national identity, it's language, it's things that we have now which give us an advantage now, but which might dry up tomorrow. So do not run to nations which appear to have the resources to protect you, for their time is coming too. Things wax and they wane. And then the last part of this section, verses 11 to 15. The princes of Zoan an Egyptian town, are utterly foolish. The wisest counsellors of Pharaoh give stupid counsel. How can you say to Pharaoh, I'm the son of the wise, a son of ancient kings? Where then are your wise men? Let them tell you that they might know what the Lord of hosts has purposed against Egypt. The princes of Zoan have become fools, and the princes of Memphis, another Egyptian city, are deluded. Those who are the cornerstones of her tribes have made Egypt stagger. 
The Lord has mingled within her a spirit of confusion, and they will make Egypt stagger in all its deeds as a drunken man staggers in his vomit. And there will be nothing for Egypt that head or tail, palm, branch or reed may do. There's been no salvation in false gods or gods of other nations, no salvation in natural resources. Now there is no salvation in human wisdom. And there's a lot that could be said here. We look around at our world today and we do want to ask the question, where are the wise? Who are they? Are the wise of the land focused on the basic problems which we have of food and shelter and warmth and human relations and how to build a civil society? Or are they focused on trivialities like celebrity culture, on identity politics? Who is it that actually influences us in our world? Who are our influencers? This word of the 21st century. Are they academics? Are they YouTube personalities? Are they sportsmen and sportswomen? Who are they? One big important philosophy which has invaded our world very thoroughly is the philosophy of postmodernism. The idea, amongst many other ideas, it's a complex thing, but one, one central aspect of it is that there is no absolute truth. There is no absolute truth. And that everything which happens in our world, how we got to where we are and how anything ever happened, is simply the exercise of pure naked power. The world is made up of relative truths and of people just exercising power. But it's led us to a state of confusion. We can't even agree on the most basic of things anymore. We can't even agree on what men and women are. We can't agree on what a human being is. What are we? We used to have generally agreed or worked out answers to these within our culture, our cultures, but no more. Is an unborn child a human being? Is a human being good? What is human nature? These are all questions with answers that are up for grabs. No one agrees. There's another one as well. The secular historian Tom Holland, who's always worth listening to or reading, makes the point that the concept of original sin, which came from Augustine, out of, well, he, he uh, articulated it. Obviously, it comes from the Bible, but he's well known for articulating it. Original sin, a powerful civilizing concept for us, because original sin puts us all in the same boat. It puts us all in the same boat. We all carry this problem of sin and thus we all need redemption from it and we're in no position to take moral high grounds over other people. And what that allows for is it allows for forgiveness because we all recognise that we wrong one another. We are all in need of forgiveness and therefore empowers us to forgive others. But in our world that is fast disappearing. Forgiveness is something which is becoming increasingly difficult and one of the reasons for that is that we have lost the concept of original sin because now it is actually possible to say human beings are right and I'm 100% right. There's a lot of people who hold a lot of very strong convictions without any sense of self-doubt or self-examination. You no longer need to consider the fact you might be right because it's now possible to actually be self-righteous. Camille Paglia, who's a feminist academic and social critic and definitely not a Christian, warns that when a society becomes confused about gender, it's facing collapse because the most basic categories upon which agreement absolutely depends to make communication possible are crumbling away. The wisdom of the world in which we live has led to confusion because the shared ground upon which we need to stand in order to have a conversation with each other is rapidly eroding away. All of which is to say, sorry for that got a bit heavy, but anyway, sometimes it's worth saying where we are, When the enemy is bearing down on you and you are under pressure, 
Do not turn to worldly gods, do not turn to worldly goods, and do not turn to worldly wisdom. They do not stand. No one is worshipping Ammon or Ra or Osiris anymore, at least not in a massive, organised, significant way. Egypt hasn't been a world superpower for thousands of years. The wise men of the world today become the fools of tomorrow. So worldly empires fall and don't put your trust in them. And so Isaiah concludes this section, verses 16 to 17, by saying this. In that day, sometime in the future, the Egyptians will be like women and tremble with fear before the hand of the Lord of hosts. Sorry, let me read that again. Before the hand that the Lord of hosts shakes over them. And the land of Judah will become a terror to the Egyptians. Everyone to whom it is mentioned will fear because of the Sorry, I can't read properly. Everyone to whom it's mentioned will fear because of the purpose that the Lord of hosts has purposed against them. Egypt will fall and God's people will rise. And on one level, that has already happened. The prophecy sees some partial fulfillment already in history. The present nation of Egypt has been at war with the present nation of Israel in the 20th century, and the tables have been turned in many ways. And so far, so predictable. We're sort of used to this sort of stuff. You read the Old Testament prophets, you're used to them speaking judgment over God's enemies and over his people, and so we think, well, this is all very normal and maybe a bit boring. But then the passage takes a very unexpected turn indeed, and that's the reason why we're looking at it today. A completely unexpected turn. Verse 18, if we could have that up. In that day, sometime in the future, there will be five cities in the land of Egypt that speak the language of Canaan, that is Hebrew, and swear allegiance to the Lord of hosts. One of these will be called the City of the Sun, or Destruction. If you've got an actual Bible, you'll see the footnote in front of you. Verse 19. In that day, sometime in the future, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt, and a pillar to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. When they, the Egyptians, cry to the Lord because of oppressors, he will send them a saviour and defender and deliver them. And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians. And the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and worship with sacrifice and offering. And they will make vows to the Lord and perform them. And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing, and they will return to the Lord and he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. In that day, sometime in the future, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, which, remember, goes through Israel. And Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. And in that day, sometime in the future, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. And this is most unexpected. The enemy of God, Egypt, is to be judged, but its end is not destruction. And Assyria, the other great enemy, is also destined ultimately not for destruction. Rather, the enemies of God are destined for salvation. The city of the sun god Ra will become a city where the language of Yahweh, the Lord, is spoken and will swear allegiance to the God of the Jews. And an altar to Yahweh, to the Lord of hosts, will be established in Egypt. And when Egypt is struck by judgment, they will cry out to Yahweh, and he will send them a Messiah. He will send them a saviour to deliver them. Yahweh will reveal himself to Egypt, no longer in judgment, but in love. And they will worship him and enter a covenant with him, 
the new covenant. He will hear their cry for mercy and he will heal them. And not only that, but warring superpowers will be reconciled in peace. A highway, this road, will connect Egypt to Assyria, binding them together such that Egyptian and Assyrian, previously enemies of one another, will worship the Lord together. Peace will come, and Egypt, God's people, and Assyria, the work of God's hands, and Israel, God's inheritance, will live together in harmony. And can you imagine the absurdity of hearing that if you're listening to Isaiah nearly 3,000 years ago? Judah, for centuries, has been this political football caught up between the megalomaniacal and the tyrannical empires to the north and to the south, and yet it is given this promise, even as it faces its own imminent demise, that the land of Israel will be at the centre, it will be at the crux, it will be the crossroads, the cross of peace. The place where former, em- former enemies are connected together in reconciliation to one another and their creator. Now, to those who were listening to Isaiah, this was a long way in the future, way beyond their lifetimes. And the fulfillment of it lies a long way off. The superpowers of the day Assyria, Egypt, and then Babylon and Persia, and then it becomes Greece, and then it becomes the Romans, and so on. They rise and they fall. Israel ceases to exist in 722 BC. Then within 130 years, 586 BC, the Babylonians come and they take Judah away into captivity and the land is desolate. But that is not the end. You see, for those who listened to Isaiah, there were very, very tough times ahead. Very tough times ahead. And for their children, there were tough times ahead. Judah was going to be ransacked, taken into captivity. But that was not the end. Beyond their lifetimes, a hope is established and comes to pass. There's going to be a return from exile. There is a return from exile. We looked at it not that long ago from the book of Ezra, where they come back from Babylon into the land of Israel. And then after that, there is a saviour, a deliverer, who we sung about today, who we love and who we worship and who we know, and who was and who is exalted in the nation of Egypt. Egypt became Christian quite early on. North Africa becomes a centre for Christianity. Augustine, who I mentioned earlier, he was from Algeria. The Lord's gets established in the nations like that early on. The Coptic church in Egypt is an ancient church. The Egyptians become worshippers of Yahweh, and so the prophecy of Isaiah sees a partial fulfilment. And so for us in our day, when peace seems very fragile, and peace may be very fragile, we must cling to this hope. You see, Egypt... Assyria, Israel, they did not escape judgments. They leaned on false gods. They leaned on natural resources. They leaned on human wisdom and they were failed by them. Russia, Ukraine, the European nations, us, the USA, we have no reason to expect we will avoid judgment for the same sins. That message still comes to us. Our hope in those things will let us down. But, but we want to be like those who listen to Isaiah, who God was speaking to, who are called to look through that judgment to what lies on the other side, which is how this passage ended. A saviour has been given, who hung on a cross, and he hung on the cross at the juncture between Africa and Asia and Europe. And he is risen, and he is the Prince of Peace. And he called us to be a people of peace in a world of war. Why? Because 
it will not always be a world of war. In that day, sometime in the future, a highway will connect east and west. And it will run through the cross of Christ. In that day, the people of God will be the third with those from the east and the west. A blessing in the midst of the earth. And the Lord will say, blessed be the people of the west, my people. And blessed be the people of the east, the work of my hands. And the church, my inheritance. Christ calls us to be a people of peace in the midst of war as a prophetic statement of the reality that is coming when our enemies will become our brothers and our sisters and we will behold the glory of God with our own eyes. And we get a foretaste of what this will look like at the end of the Bible, which is what I will close with, Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. Worthy are you, Jesus, to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. I'm going to pray and I don't know if we can sing. Father in heaven, we thank you that your mercy and your grace and your compassion are long-suffering. And that you look through all the mess which we create, and you look through it to the other side where you have sent Jesus as a saviour for us in the predicament of our sin. And Lord, thank you that that doesn't just encompass us here as individuals sat in this room, but it encompasses empires, nations, peoples, tribes, languages, tongues throughout the world, throughout history. Thank you that you are working out this amazing new covenant which will bring reconciliation where there is war. Father, we pray that you would give us hope to live through the struggles which we have to live through, setting before ourselves this vision of a future of a new creation where all war and suffering will cease, where peace will be absolute and universal and we will see Jesus face to face and we will know him way better than we know him now. May this hope keep us going, we pray, to keep us to be a people of peace, to be people who extend forgiveness, to be a people of compassion, to be a people of hope and of faith. Do this in us, we pray, by your Spirit, and strengthen us for what lies ahead. Bring peace to our world, we ask. Cause people to lay down their weapons May enemies become friends within our lifetime. And may you bring hope and restoration to that which has been destroyed. You are the God of resurrection, as we have sung of this morning. And we put all of our hope in that. In Jesus' name, amen. Can't see who's doing the words. Sorry, is it Abby behind there? Abby, we're going to do This Is Our God. Right.